There is something about us, something in all of us, that loves to see somebody else finding the one thing that God made them to do, created them for, and gifted them for. And there's just something in us that when we see that person find that one thing and devote their entire lives to mastering that craft, there is something in us that just, we find it beautiful. We, we enjoy watching that person do the thing that they love. Back when I was in Birmingham, one of the pastors at the church that we attended, his name was Jason Cook. And Jason Cook used to be a running back. And he was a pretty good one. He played for University of Mississippi, Ole Miss, and he actually eventually made it to the NFL, scored a touchdown in the league. So, like, pretty good deal. Well, one day at the church, we got a game of flag football going. And watching this six foot two behemoth of a man run was the most beautiful thing that I had ever seen. Like, he could just plant his foot and get upfield before the rest of us mortals could even blink. So like he was thinking like two and three steps and cuts ahead. He was playing chess while we were playing checkers. Like it was just aesthetically pleasing to watch this man run. Like whenever you see someone do what God designed and gifted them to do and work their entire lives to devote themselves to their craft, like sometimes you just step back and say that, that is beautiful. Well, a few months ago, the elders and elder candidates of our church were in Reno for a pastor's conference, for the Acts 29 conference. And we had one of those rare opportunities to see someone doing the one thing that God had gifted him to do, and he had spent his entire life devoted to mastering his craft. There was a man there named Art Azurdia. So he is a pastor in Portland, Oregon. He is a preacher of a seminary there. He's written several books on preaching. I was assigned to them when I was in seminary. Like I've listened to his sermons for years. Like I've learned a lot from art. And when art got up to preach, I'm, I'm not going to be able to like fully communicate it. You had to be there. But it was beautiful. Like he preached with authority and power and conviction like I'm, I'm one of the least theologically charismatic people you'll ever meet like I like to say if I can steal a line from a friend the most charismatic thing that I do is press shuffle on my iPod but when art was preaching like it took everything in me not to get up and just like start running laps around the room like he was just killing it like I, I was sure that when he finished Jesus himself was going to come back, tear the roof off the place, and like the kingdom is here now, eternity, let's get it on. Like it, it was one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. I didn't think about anything else for three days. Well, a few weeks ago, I got an email with a link from the elders at Art's church. And it turns out that Art had been having an affair. And it wasn't the first time. He'd been having several affairs for many years. There were previous women. And, and it honestly took me a minute. Like th th this man who could preach the gospel better than 
anyone else in the world, someone who I'd read his books, I'd looked up to him. He's like a, a spiritual hero to me. He'd been living a double life. From the pulpit, he would proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. He could lead his family. He could lead his church. He could lead people like me who he's never even, even met. And at the same time, he's living this totally other life of sin and secrecy, of darkness, and of sin. And so Art lost his church. He lost his job teaching. Goodness knows the effect that it's had on his family. Like, his life is an absolute ruin. And I wouldn't be surprised if in the last few weeks, Art has spent some time reading our passage for this morning about the woman caught in adultery. Because in this story, like Art, a woman's sin, her sexual sin, is exposed. It, it is violently brought out into the open. She is laid bare, and everybody knows what she has done. And so I'm just going to state the obvious. We all know this. If you are north of puberty, or even if you're just two days into puberty, <laughs> you are sexually broken. All of us have sinful hearts that sexually we just we lash out and we try and find satisfaction and fulfillment in the wrong way. And so pornography is rampant in our culture. Unfortunately, the church isn't really much of an exception. Um, whenever I've asked a man, a Christian man, if he's ever viewed or struggled with pornography in you know, the few years I've been in ministry, there's only been one man who said no. Everybody else will willingly admit it. So I assume 99.9% .9 of men have dealt with pornography. But it's not just men. Like, that, that's a myth that needs to be done away with. Like, pornography has an allure on women as well. We have adulterers in this room, people who have cheated on their spouses, people who are cheating on their spouses. And it gets worse. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 that even if you simply lust after someone with your eyes, that that act of looking is equally as condemning as the physical act of adultery. So pretty much 100% of us in here are sexually broken, and Jesus is speaking to us in our brokenness in this story. But if by some miracle you aren't sexually broken, maybe it's something that you dealt with many years ago, maybe it's something in your past, maybe you can say that it is totally behind you. This story doesn't leave you off the hook. See, the passage is called, it's titled, The Woman Caught in Adultery, but if you look at it, more attention is given to the men who caught her and brought her forth. And no, these men, they weren't sexually immoral. They hadn't committed the same sins that this woman had. They, could, they had committed much worse sins. They didn't commit the sin of sexual immorality. They just looked down their noses at her and judged her for her sexual immorality. They looked at their own good behavior, and their hearts began to grow proud and arrogant about how good they were. If there's anything I know about the human heart, it is that it is deceitfully wicked. And it can even begin to look at good things, even good 
biblical sexual ethics, and it can begin to grow proud and arrogant of its own obedience. I'm sure that all of us fall somewhere into one of those two camps, as the adulterer and the Pharisee, probably both. And so I think this passage has many things to say to all of us. So let's dig into it. When Lauren read this for us, you might have noticed a little alert sign in your Bible. Or maybe on your phone, I don't know what you have. A little alert sign that said, our earliest manuscripts do not include this passage. Or maybe it's just down in the footnote. There's some kind of designation. If you're old school, if you're still rocking the KJV, shout out Lisa Bowerman, mom. She... I talked to her this week. There was no kind of alert in her Bible. It just, it went normally. But for every other version, there's a little script that says this passage isn't in the earliest manuscripts. And I could probably talk for an hour about this, about how we got our Bibles. You know, if it was written by Paul and James and all the New Testament writers, and if we don't have what they originally wrote, if we just have copies of copies of copies, like how do we know like what we have is accurate? You know, that's just, you know, right up in my nerdy zone. I love it. Um, But now just isn't the time or place to do a deep dive into that. So if that kind of thing interests you, if you wonder how we got our Bible or if you've ever been genuinely concerned about, you know, is my Bible accurate? Is it complete? Should certain things be in there or not? Please come up and talk to me afterwards. I'd, I'd love to talk about it. Now, this isn't the time or place. So for now, I'll I'll just say this, that scholars are pretty sure that this passage wasn't in the earliest record of John's gospel, but they are equally sure that it happened. Scholars are equally sure that this is a historical account. This is an actual event that Jesus had with these people and said these words. Words. It has all the earmarks of being historical. And so I'm just going to preach it in a way that like nothing new, no new doctrine comes out of this text. It doesn't contradict anything else we see in Scripture. In fact, it actually supports everything that we read in the rest of the Bible. So I'm just going to preach it in a way that nothing new is drawn out of it. And hopefully just show you how all the Bible comes around this passage and supports it. So the passage begins, and Jesus is teaching in the temple, and it's early in the morning, and the scribes and Pharisees bring to him a woman, and they say that she was caught in the act of adultery. All right, the text seemed to suggest that she was literally caught in the act. And so they bring this woman before Jesus, and in verse 5, they say, Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So Jesus, what do you say? And before we even get to what Jesus said, something doesn't seem right here. The last time I checked, in order for adultery to happen, two people have to be present. Takes two to tango. And so they bring the woman. Where's the man? He's equally as guilty He committed the same offense. He should be equally condemned under the law. Where's the man? So either when the scribes and Pharisees broke into their bedroom, that man was just really quick on his feet and he could run away really fast, 
Or what I think is more likely is that these scribes and Pharisees weren't concerned at all about righteousness and justice. They didn't actually want to see the law carried out. They just wanted to use this woman's shame as an opportunity to trap Jesus. That's confirmed in verse 6, where it says, This they said to him, him being Jesus, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So, so their hearts were so hard. They were so unconcerned with real righteousness and real justice that they were able to take this woman in the moment of her deepest and darkest shame, and they were willing to just throw her out into the open and use her as a tool to accomplish their own means, which was to set a trap for Jesus. What was that trap? On the one hand, they were trying to trap Jesus with the law of Moses. In Deuteronomy 22, Moses wrote, If there is a betrothed virgin, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. So these scribes and Pharisees were trying to pit Jesus against Moses. And they said, Moses said we should stone this woman. So Jesus, what do you say? And if Jesus said, no, this woman committed adultery, but you don't have to stone her, then they could have claimed that he was rejecting the law of Moses. He was rejecting like the biggest spiritual hero of the Jewish people. They could have claimed that he was a heretic, and then he just would have lost all credibility. So that was like one half of the trap. The other half of the trap was the Roman government. And so at that time, the Jews were living under the Roman government. And usually, Rome would let uh, the people practice whatever religion they want, however they wanted to. But one restriction that they did hold over everybody was the authority and the right to pass judgment on capital punishment. They reserved that right for themselves. They said only the Roman governor over that area has the right and the authority to hand out the death sentence. So if Jesus says, yes, this adulterer does deserve to be stoned, then it would be like he is infringing on the authority of the Roman government. He's saying, I don't have to do what Rome says. I can hand out a life sentence. Okay, so, so, so just imagine the scribes and the Pharisees here. Like, tension has been building throughout John's gospel between them and Jesus. And he's just been a thorn in their flesh. And they finally devise this perfect trap. Either he rejects Moses and loses all credibility with the Jewish people, or he infringes on the rights of the Roman government, in which case we can just run over to the Roman headquarters, report that he's a rebel, and they'll take care of him. Like, finally, we are going to take care of Jesus, we've got him trapped. So how does Jesus weasel himself out of this one? We see that he bends down and he starts to write with his finger in the dirt. And this is the only record we have of Jesus ever writing anything. He didn't write any of the books in the Bible. 
As far as we know, he didn't write an autobiography about himself. This is the only time that we ever hear of Jesus actually writing something down. And few things in church history have garnered as much speculation as to what Jesus actually wrote. And so I'm just going to tell you right now, we have no idea. It's all speculation. Some people think that Jesus was writing out the Ten Commandments. And they get that from Deuteronomy 9. And the Lord delivered unto Moses two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And so some people kind of draw that connection of God using his finger to write the Ten Commandments in the stone and Jesus using his finger to write whatever it is he wrote in the dirt. Others think, and if you backed me into a corner and I absolutely had to pick one, I'd probably pick this just because it's more fun. Jesus looked around at the scribes and the Pharisees who had brought this adulterous woman and knowing what is in the hearts of man, Jesus like got down on one knee and looked at Pharisee Frank and wrote embezzler. And he looked at Pharisee Tim and wrote liar. Or just maybe, again, this is speculation, we don't know, maybe some of those scribes and Pharisees were adulterers themselves. They could just get away with it because of their status and hiding behind you know, their, their sense of moral superiority. And so he looked at Pharisee Chris, and this is just my imagination getting away with me. He actually like started to write the names of their lovers, Sophie, Jasmine. And so as he was writing these things, Jesus said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. So basically what Jesus is saying is that, yes, this woman does deserve to be stoned, but you can only throw a stone at her if you yourself are totally innocent. And so as the scribes and Pharisees saw what Jesus wrote, they realized they weren't innocent. And so they began to walk away one by one. Jesus had gotten out of their trap. He upheld the law of Moses. Yes, this woman does deserve to be stoned, but he also exposed the sins of the scribes and Pharisees in such a way that they no longer had any ground to stand on. And so they couldn't pick up a stone and throw it at this woman. So they, they leave. They've been beat. And so now Jesus is left with this woman, one-on-one -on -one there alone. And the last man that this woman was alone with was the man she was having an affair with. It was a relationship of secrecy and shame and darkness and sin. She wasn't proud of it. The men she had been with most recently, the scribes and the Pharisees, they didn't even see her as a person they just saw her sin and saw her as a tool in order to accomplish what they wanted. And so I wouldn't be surprised, based on her past history and experience with men, if Jesus or if this woman expected more condemnation or abuse or manipulation from Jesus. So Jesus says to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No, no one, Lord. This is where she probably thought Jesus was about to drop the hammer on her. And to her surprise, Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. 
go. And from now on, sin no more. All the other men who had wanted to throw a stone at her were disqualified because they were sinners. And here stood the one man who was sinless, the one man who had the right to pick up a stone and throw it in her. That one man said, I don't condemn you. No one ever spoke like this man before. Neither do I condemn you, now go, and from now on sin no more. I think so often in the Christian life we get that backwards. We think, God, I have to clean myself up. I have to make myself better. I have to start sinning less. I have to pull myself up by my bootstraps. And once I've been made more acceptable in your sight, then you will love me. But that's not how God works. Our God is always a God who speaks grace first and then law. And so we this happens to work out all the time. For our New City Catechism, I didn't plan this, but we read from the Ten Commandments. And God is always a God of grace first, even in the Old Testament. And so if you go back and you read Exodus 19 and Exodus 20, where God gives the law, he's about to show Israel how they are to live. He's about to put demands on them. If you go back and read Exodus 19, verse 4, God says to his people, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You are my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And again, in Exodus 20, before he gives the law, he says it again. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So do you see what God's doing there? He's saying, I brought you out of Egypt. I delivered you from slavery. I led you through the Red Sea. I have loved you. I started a relationship with you. I am yours. You are mine. I love you. Grace. Then the law. God is always a God of grace first. So the law wasn't given to help Israel earn God's love. No, no, no. God had already loved them. He had already delivered them from Egypt and slavery. He had built a relationship with them and shown them love. And then he gave them the demands for how they were to live. Neither do I condemn you. Grace, now go and sin no more. I think of the prophet Hosea. And prophets were given messages by God in which they were usually told to preach a message that would challenge God's people to repent and to turn back to God. And Hosea's specific message was to say to Israel, God's people, you are an adulterous people. You are like a bride who is cheating on her husband. You are chasing after other gods. You are being an adulterer to the one who delivered you out of Egypt. Now come back to him. And a lot of times, in order to make their message clearer, God would give his prophets, command them to do like a physical illustration to help it sink into the hearer's minds a little bit. And so Hosea's picture, illustration that he had to do, God told him, 
Go and take for yourself a wife of whoredom. God said, I'm going to tell you before you even propose, she's going to cheat on you. She is going to have children with other men than you. She is going to leave you time and time again, and you are to go and to marry her and to show her love. And things God says typically tend to come true. And so Hosea went and he married Gomer. And just like God said, Gomer left. She chased after other men. She had children with other men. She fell into prostitution and that lifestyle didn't treat her very well. So eventually she ended up into slavery. And one day she was out at the market and slaves had to get up and stand on a trading block and people would bid on them and buy them. And Hosea was told by God to go to that market and to buy his wife back. And he didn't give her any requirements first. He didn't say, promise me you'll be faithful for a year or 10 years. He didn't say like, show me you can do this and then I'll buy you back. He bought her back on the spot in the midst of her shame and adultery and whoring, Hosea bought her back. It was as if he was saying to her, I don't condemn you. I love you. Now come home. I think of Romans 5, verse 8. We read that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, not once we'd started to clean ourselves up a little bit. While you were stealing money from your company, while you were cheating on your spouse, while you were gossiping, while you were being self-righteous, that is when Christ died for you. He loves us first. He shows us grace first. He transforms us and heals us and redeems us, and then he tells us how to live. So the last verse that Lauren read at the beginning of the next paragraph, Jesus says that he is the light of the world, and whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So sin, and especially sexual sin, are associated with darkness. That's the area of our lives that we like to keep secret and hidden. We don't want other people to know about it. We don't want to bring it to the light. And here's the thing about darkness and light. If you've ever been asleep and had your parents walk in and just flip the light switch on, you know how much light hurts. You squint your eyes and you recoil and you push your head back into the pillow and you say some unsanctified things to mom and dad. But when it comes to sin and sexual sin and darkness, light hurts. So often we just want to go run right back into it because it's safe, it's comfortable, it's what we know. It doesn't hurt, it feels good. But, but to the person who is struggling with sin, and especially sexual sin, like, let me plead with you. Come out into the light. Yes, it is going to hurt. But the 
only thing waiting for you back there in the darkness is more sin and more shame, more secrecy, and more guilt. Stop going back to the broken cistern. Stop going back to the thing that is going to leave you more hungry and more thirsty and more unsatisfied than when you even started. And so bring it out into the light. Yes, it will hurt. But I guarantee you, Jesus is waiting there to say to you, I'm not here to throw a stone at you. I'm not here to condemn you. I love you. Now go and sin no more. But notice something else that Jesus does as the light of the world in this passage. He exposes the sexual sin of the adulterous woman, but it doesn't stop there. He also exposes the sin of the scribes and the Pharisees. And again, we don't know what it was, but whatever he wrote down was so spot on that it, it pricked the conscience of the scribes and Pharisees so much that they had to walk away. And so it was God's grace to them that their sin was exposed. But the thing with Pharisees is that they don't think they need to be forgiven. Their hearts are hard to the gospel. They think that because of their good behavior that God should love them anyway. So I think of the parable of the prodigal son. And so the younger brother took his inheritance and he went and squandered it all on reckless living. And once he hit rock bottom, once he was literally eating out of a pig trough, he's like, all right, what am I doing? I'm stupid. I'm a sinner. I've messed it up. I'm going to go home and I'm going to beg on my hands and knees for forgiveness from my father. He was a sinner and he knew it. But the older brother, he's the one who stayed at home. He did what dad said he should do. He obeyed the rules. And when his younger brother came home and dad started to throw a party because the brother who was lost had been found, he was so angry that he refused to go in and enjoy the party. He had a Pharisee's heart. He said, my moral behavior makes me better than him. He doesn't deserve to be shown love. I do because I earned it. When it comes to RP and to our congregation, I think we're probably an equal split. We probably have an equal amount of adulterers and an equal amount of Pharisees. And the more that I've learned about the human heart, we rarely sin that neatly. We rarely sin in just one area. Usually it crosses both lines. And so maybe on a Saturday night you watch pornography, adulterer, and then on Sunday morning you write a big check and think that because you're giving more that God will love you more. Pharisee. Or if you're me... You sit out into the crowd and you listen to other preachers and you sit under other preachers and instead of first and foremost listening and yearning for and being hungry for the gospel of Christ which I so desperately need, the first lens that I filter think through is somebody's ability to preach the gospel. Adulterer. But then on my Sundays when I get up to preach, I think the Trinity becomes a quartet and I'm just God's gift to the world. Pharisee. I think because of what I can do, 
that God loves me more. And there are thousands of ways that this happens. We are at the same time adulterer and Pharisee. And so, so no matter what camp you're in, if you're in both, which you probably are, this passage has something to say to us. Jesus loves both the sinner and the self-righteous Pharisee enough to expose their sins. And so two things by way of closing and by way of application. Number one, come into the light. If you are struggling with sexual sin, or any sin for that matter, don't stay in the darkness any longer. There's nothing for you there. And yes, it will hurt when you first come out, but in the light there's freedom. And we want to be a church where it is okay to not be okay. We want you to feel safe and comfortable to come before your brothers and sisters in Christ and say, I'm broken. I need help. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, we read that if we confess our sins, if we bring them out of darkness and into light, then Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All right, but church, catch this. Don't only confess your sins to Jesus. Yes, he is the only one who can forgive you and cleanse them from you. So yes, that will make you righteous. But when you read the Bible, and especially when it comes to exposing sin, it is always a public and corporate affair. So in our passage, sin was exposed publicly. Back in John 4, the woman at the well, the woman who had five husbands and the man she was sleeping with at the time wasn't her husband. After her encounter with Jesus, she didn't go back to the darkness. She went into the village and told everyone, come and see this man. Come see who I used to be, but look at what Christ has done for me. James, the brother of Jesus in chapter 5 of his letter, tells us to confess our sins one to another that we may be healed. There is something about confessing your sins to your fellow brothers and sisters in the church. It is a tool that God has given us to help us fight sin. So we had a sermon writing meeting this week, and Mark said something about the church and fighting sin that I thought was really helpful. Mark said, if you've never confessed your sin to other believers, you either don't really want to be free or you don't realize the resource that the body of Christ is in the battle of sin. This together is where sin is fought and conquered over. Yes, Christ forgives you. He puts his blood on you and he sees you as clean and spotless, but then he puts you with other sinners who are covered in his blood to fight together. I think of art and for the years that he must have gotten on his knees and prayed and begged the Lord for forgiveness and for deliverance. And I'm, I'm sure that if he was genuine, the Lord forgave him. But what Art neglected to do was to confess his sins one to another. He neglected the tool, the weapon that God had given him in the church to help him fight sin. So we want to be a church where it's okay to not be okay.
all of us are broken. The only requirement we have for you to walk through that door is to admit that you don't deserve to be here. That's what the gospel is, that we are all broken and we are all in need of healing by Jesus. Number two, what is our hope that we can come into the light? What is our hope that if we do come out, that Jesus won't be standing there with a stone to throw at us? It would be a mistake to read this passage and to think that Jesus doesn't take sin seriously. It would be a mistake to read his gracious words of, neither do I condemn you, now go and sin no more, is him just sweeping sin under the rug. Okay, grace doesn't mean that there aren't consequences. Grace means that there are consequences, and I love you enough to walk with you through those consequences. And so how could Jesus tell this woman, come out into the light? How can Jesus tell us, come out into the light? It's because he has already dealt with those consequences. Jesus takes sin very seriously. That is why he came to this earth in the first place. Remember John 1, 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He takes sin so seriously that he went to the cross for it. And on the cross, our sin and the wrath that we deserved was placed on his shoulders. And he took our place in what we deserved. And so on that dark day on a Roman hillside, the light of the world was snuffed out. And he was put into the ground for three days. But he had done battle with the devil. He had taken our sin and he had done away with it. And he came out on the other side victorious. And he came out of that grave in bursting and glorious light. And he is still alive and he is calling for us to come out into the light. Look to Christ by faith. Don't go running back into the darkness. Look to him. Let the light of Jesus shine into the darkness of your soul and be healed. Let me pray for us. Lord, our hearts are deceitfully wicked. And they run to things that we know won't satisfy so quickly. And on our own, we would never come to you. And so we ask that by your love that you would draw us to yourself, would you shine the light of Christ into our dark hearts. Lord, be gracious enough to us to expose our sin so that we can be healed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.